0: Hello and welcome to Comedy in a Nutshell, the podcast where I talk to comedians about comedy and what it means to them. You know, oftentimes when I'm out and about, I get asked my opinion on things and I always respond the same way. I'm sorry, I don't work here. For more about me and my podcasts and the comedians that I've seen, visit my website, thecomedynerd.com. I love talking to the people in comedy about comedy. If you like to hear what they have to say as much as I do, then please like, subscribe, rate, review and share the podcast. Thank you. My guest this episode is not only an extraordinary singing talent, but in 2019 she decided to join the ranks of musical comedians and in 2020 won audience choice at the Musical Comedy Awards. In a few years since then she's made an indelible mark on the comedy circuit and been marked out by the press as one to watch. It's musical comedian Amy Webber. Well before we get to talk about Amy Webber Comedian, let's talk about Amy Webber singer a little bit because in your in your Edinburgh show you talk about your cv obviously which we'll get on to but you've got an extraordinary cv as a singer why don't you run us through that a little bit first
1: so yeah when i was a kid i did little bits of performing you know bits of musical theater dance a little sunday school and um i finally got myself a one-to-one singing teacher who said you should you should have lessons with me but i teach opera and i was like oh opera you know i'd never i'd never listened to an opera we'd never been to the opera as a family but i Mm. thought okay well if this guarantees me a ticket to a career on on a stage i'll do it and it just got out of hand and i ended up doing it at uni and it wasn't until i auditioned to do my masters in opera that the head of vocals went do you actually, she said, I'm just going to ask, do you actually like opera? And I went, (laughs) no, no, I don't. And then she said, all right, well, you know, I recommend you don't do a master's then in (laughs) opera and you just have a few years out. And I'm really grateful for that because... I kind of just got blinded by, I want to be on stage. I want to be on stage. And I forgot really that I don't connect to opera at all. And then after that, I realized that I love pop and I love jazz and I love writing. Mm. With opera, I couldn't find my creative voice or my creative freedom. You know, you're just performing other people's songs that were written hundreds of years ago oftentimes and being told what to do by the director and the conductor and now the transition from me doing pop and jazz then doing comedy then directing and producing my own one woman show feels like ah now I have found what I like doing right you know but it took me a while to get there.
0: (laughs) So during all this study and performance and recital and what have you where where was comedy within all of that? nowhere nowhere
1: <laughs> yeah no honestly it was nowhere. i mean occasionally i would do a slightly funny song in in one of my opera repertoire classes but really opera when you get a funny opera song you got to do funny and in inverted commas because it's just not that funny so i didn't do any comedy i didn't think of myself as a comedian i'd always try and make my friends laugh you know if, if i went to a house party at uni people would say oh oh my friend i don't know my friend rebecca said you were funny and i'll be like yes you know i was always aiming to make people laugh mm-hmm. but it wasn't until i was 29 that i did my you know that i even wrote a funny song and and dared to perform it mm-hmm. so uh yeah i just did i did lots of classical gigs i did lots of new music you know contemporary classical yeah. moved on to singing with a jazz band moved on to writing to creating a pop band and writing our own tunes and we did some festivals got played on six music and then all of that now is parked up, in a, mm. in a sense, for me to do comedy.
0: So what was it then? Uh, I think in 2019 that you decided, okay, so I've done the opera halls and I've toured doing Gilbert and Sullivan, and and then you go, now I want to tell jokes in an attic. What what changed? What made that a decision?
1: I guess. The first change was now I want to write my own music. I think that was the first change. Mm -hmm. And so I started performing under the name E-I-M-I-E. Again, there's a bit in my show that you've seen about that. Mm -hmm. So I started writing my own pop songs and performing them. And around the same time, when I got the knowledge and power to record, you know, to use technology and microphones and computers and pianos enough to record my own music and my own singing. Mm around that time I started writing funny songs as well and thought okay well I'll do my pop gigs writing my own music and I'll do I'll start experimenting with some comedy and that was really just a couple of open mic nights in Manchester and then doing Beat the Frog at Frog and Bucket quite a lot of time. so I really enjoyed it there and the student crowds seemed to I seemed to go down well with them so I would keep going back hmm. and I guess in a way then the comedy took over I realized there was more hunger and more love for me doing comedy Hmm. than there was necessarily space in the music industry for me doing like straight singing Hmm. and so you know I've gone toward the one that seems to buy me more stage time and more fans which is comedy yeah yeah
0: well you say about getting you stage time but I mean you obviously from what I've seen you look like you're having just the best time do you get more Mm -hmm. out of performing musical comedy than you do performing music in itself
1: I enjoy I enjoy both but I guess when I'm performing comedy I feel like I'm being more authentic so the audience really get to know me and I love that when when people come up to me after a gig and they're very familiar and they're like Amy and then they they say oh sorry you know we haven't met but I feel like I know you mm-hmm. from seeing your show and I, and I really love that and sometimes it can be harder in music to 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 bear your soul as quickly because you know what you can portray in in a three-minute song with lyrics Mm -hmm. is much less than the amount of information you can get across in a three-minute skit so i yeah in that sense i think the audience know me better i'm able to be really truthfully honest and um being funny is part of me so in my pop songs it was very hard to be funny it's it's hard to write a pop song that's funny mm. without it turning into a comedy song. So when you're doing, you know, eight very sincere heartbreak love songs in a set, mm. and then suddenly you you chuck in one about, I don't know what, a comedy issue, it doesn't fit. So that was the other thing. I, I wasn't finding much space to be funny at all in my original music, which is why I think comedy felt like a, a release. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Were there people or events that inspired you when you decided to take the leap into musical comedy? Was there people that you had in mind? Do you know what?
1: Not so. My my upbringing didn't involve much comedy. I know this may be a question that you'll you'll ask me later, but I guess when we were kids, like we read the Twits, and from my dad, me and my sister have inherited quite a crude sense of humour. So we love, you know, like fart jokes, bogey jokes, poo jokes. <laughs> And as a family, we used to watch Green Wing. Did you watch Green Wing?
0: Oh, I love Green Wing, yeah.
1: Really quite like dry, British, sometimes quite sexualized, but we used to watch that and I really enjoyed that. And we also watched a lot of extras. Mm. Um so that's the kind of humour I grew up on. And my mum and dad like never, I never saw them watching like live comedy on the TV or in real life. Yeah. I never saw them watching. A musical comedy and it honestly wasn't till about two years ago that I even watched a Bill Bailey sketch um so I'm not I don't know sometimes I worry that that's bad it's the same it was the same <laughs> when I was studying opera okay so some of my my peers would know loads of opera singers hmm. they'd seen loads of operas and they could listen to someone and say, oh, I know that's that soprano, blah, blah, blah. Right. Whereas, and it's the same in comedy. Some people are complete comedy nerds and they know, you know, they could name 20 famous musical comedians. Mm. I'm just, I'm not, I'd, I just don't work like that. I think as a creative and I never really have, I just like to do my own thing and, and hope it's good. Mm. I think I always get worried when I watch others that either I'm going to copy them accidentally or that I might sit there and be jealous. And I know jealousy is a is a sort of horrible emotion, but it's it's one that we should all talk about more. Cause as creatives, you can't help but feel it when other people are on a massive stage. And I watched Bill Bailey and he was great and I thought, oh, what if what if I never get to do this? What if I never get to perform in front of a big adoring crowd? I'll be so gutted. So it's not exactly jealousy, like in a nasty way, in a but it's just like this sense of real longing that i think sometimes holds me back from from watching others i watch i watch a lot of comedy i suppose right um but not on like youtube or in my room I'm, i when i'm at a gig i watch it anyway i'm yeah. going off on a tangent now but <laughs> uh, so i didn't really have any musical comedian inspiration it mm. was just i just did what i thought was was fun for me
0: yeah um you talked there a little bit about watching other comedians and about jealousy and other emotions but as you watch comedy do you watch it as an audience member or do you watch it as a comedian are you listening to the mechanics of what they're doing or just waiting for the punchline
1: good question i think uh mostly i just watch it as an audience but i think maybe in just the last like two or three months Hmm. i've started to take more notice of the structure of a joke and you know so i've got i've got the show you came to see no previous experience and my aim for next year is to make that 45 into an hour and to really tighten the writing and the jokes but i'm already thinking about 2025 and i'm like shit. i guess the natural progression is that i'd have a whole new hour and so i'm starting to think a lot more about how on earth i'm gonna to put together another show because you know the 45 that i've got already is a culmination of stuff i thought about and wrote during lockdown you know mm. i almost had two years to put that together of doing fuck all else yeah. so it's like now i'm uh yeah I'm, I'm starting to feel a bit apprehensive about how i'm gonna write new material i still feel very new to this i still don't have like a group around me of comedians like I'm still quite new to the scene again this is an inverted commas but like for example I've got my birthday in a couple of weeks and I've made a little list of friends to invite I haven't got a comedian friend on there I do have (laughs) comedian friends but we're not close enough Hmm. to invite them you know there's not any comedians I well there's maybe like a couple but that I would go and like meet for a drink just me and them outside of a gig so I I just feel still very much on the outskirts of the scene and therefore I feel like I have a lack of people to um collaborate with and write with Hmm. and bounce ideas off so right now I'm going to gigs and I'm like shit I need to start working on my show for 2025 I better listen in a comedy way yeah (laughs)
0: You mentioned the lockdown there. So obviously you you started comedy. Is it 2019 you started doing comedy? Yeah, I
1: think I did like four gigs that year. Yeah. So I started, but it was a very loose start.
0: Yeah. And of course, it was the best possible time to to go out on a new venture. So when lockdown hit, what did that do to your career overall? What did that do to your earliest forays in comedy?
1: Yeah, so I guess what it did is my career overall just came to a complete stop. Mm. And um, it was when Rishi Sunak suggested that people in the arts should consider retraining Mm. that I first wrote my CV song. So it was kind of as a um, play on that to say, well, I'll put my CV into a song then and see what other jobs I could get with my, you know, completely pointless qualifications, unless (laughs) they're in the arts. And then that's kind of what the whole show is born out of, as you've seen. Um, and I wrote the other, most of the other bits during during lockdown, where I was like, okay, well, I'll show the audience I could be a teacher, I'll show them I could be a music therapist, but really, I'm quite bad at all those jobs and quite unemployable. Um, yeah, so it, it was a really lucky time. And Like I say, I I was just doing my master's in pop. So I just figured out how to write my own music, how to wire up a microphone and connect it to the laptop and stuff so for me weirdly lockdown came at a good time and I missed a lot of performing opportunities but I suppose because in one sense or another I've been performing since my teenage years Hmm. I'm not that wasn't such a worry for me yeah you know like stage time because in a way I'm used to holding a crowd or speaking to a crowd um so it was just a time to try and write my show which I didn't even know was going to be a show they were just little sketches to me hmm. and then finally I realized I could put them all together and go to Edinburgh <laughs> a surprise to me
0: did you get an opportunity during the, the lockdown periods to perform comedy like did you do zoom things like that
1: I think I did a couple like I did one for BBC upload hmm. and I did a performance on Radio Manchester where I was living at the time Mm. and then I did the Funny Women Awards so they were all Zoom but that was it I didn't do any other gigs again by at that point I didn't have any contacts anyway so I wouldn't have known what comedy nights were or who was running them and I also didn't really have any good footage of me performing right so yeah
0: yeah so yes so having done all of this performance live performance and then you go into comedy again we're back in those few gigs in 2019 what was different about doing musical comedy what what expectations did you have doing it and what surprises did you find
1: my biggest surprise was how much people laughed <laughs> like I, a lot of the time I just don't even find funny songs that funny I would rather go and watch stand-up myself but um, I think because it's through song it makes it funnier to people hmm. I, I just think it's so different for me as a listener because I'm thinking about the music or someone's voice or my own voice. But I think when you're listening, there is something funny about, yeah, funny songs. Yeah. That was honestly a surprise to me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, yes, Beat the Frog, you mentioned, Manchester. Going into a competition like that uh, quite early on, again, what was the sort of expectation? Was it, was it just uh, just going to be a gig or we'll try it out, we'll see what happens?
1: Yeah so I think that beat the frog which I did in May 2019 was yeah. my third ever gig and then <laughs> and then I won mm. and then you get invited back for a spot if you win which I did in like March which was, I think my fifth gig, and then it was lockdown. So all my gigs were like, you know, months apart. And they were also, by the way, they were my old songs, which I used to do with a ukulele. So it's a different set to now. I didn't use my mini keyboard or my laptop. I used to do uh, like two songs with a ukulele, which I don't do anymore and they make me cringe, but anyway. (laughs) Beat the frog. Yeah, I was really nervous. I was really nervous that I would get gonged off. And I was nervous for the embarrassment. At that point, again, I wasn't trying to be a comedian, really. I, it was just my friends were like, they're really funny. And you've made people laugh. So why don't you do it at Beat the Frog? And mm. I guess with all that performing experience and confidence that I had in one sense, yeah. I was like, okay, I'm just going to do it. And if I get, if I get gonged off, That's it. But Mm. my aim was just to try and do the five minutes. And I got through and I won. And that was, it was a really good feeling. And it made me realize, not necessarily that I'm funny, but it made me realize that if I get the songs and the tone right, I can entertain a room of 200 people and get them on my side. And I think that was the empowering bit. Yeah. Yeah. Because I still don't know if I'm funny really, but I think (laughs) I am accepting that I'm entertaining.
0: interesting way of looking at it I talk to comedians all the time about their material being self-deprecating but they're very rarely self-deprecating in our conversation
1: (laughs) well maybe I am a bit funny I'm very confident that I'm funny in like my personal life you know with my friends or if I meet someone and they go oh you're funny I'll be like cool thanks yes I am (laughs) whereas on stage uh yeah i'm just being silly and you know sometimes like my the the run i did in edinburgh my show was at 2 40 in the afternoon so i think people were quite reserved in some senses and they weren't like it wasn't like really loud laughter i've I've definitely done gigs in the evening times that with the same show and it's been louder Mm. but i have i've learned to accept that if people are just really listening and you and you're selling out then that's great and it doesn't need to be like people, you know, pissing themselves laughing to be good and to be entertaining. Yeah. Mm.
0: You also mentioned the funny women, which, as you said, was online. So, with um, things like the Gong shows and the funny women, how do you feel about competition? Those competitions or, or competitions in general?
1: Well, I think you've got to take them with a pinch of salt. They're obviously subjective. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got to the, I've won some. I've got to the semi-finals of some, and I've not got through to some others. So it's, it's not it is subjective but if you do well it's great on your cv yeah. so it's a kind of it's a win win isn't it yeah. it's a good way to get your name out if you do well and if you don't get through you just go oh well you know the application video wasn't quite what they wanted or um they didn't like me and that's okay so i think yeah you just got to not get too obsessed with them or with your progression within them mm. the, i mean the musical comedy awards That skipping forward, I guess, to post lockdown. But when I won that, that was such a surprise. I I had no idea I was going to win. I was having a bit of a row with my boyfriend on that day. And then we actually broke up a few weeks later. So I I was in quite a negative headspace and um and then they were like and the audience prize goes to Amy Weber and i was like what and it was another beat the frog moment actually mm-hmm. where i where i sort of thought like oh my god what i've managed to like captivate these people into voting for me out of all <laughs> the other people and i couldn't really believe it but um yeah competitions have have served me well mm. and i would encourage people to do them but just not get sad if they don't get through
0: yeah what about other types of criticism like reviews and well even down to heckles how do you respond to feedback in the room or in the press
1: um so i've never really had like a really negative heckle actually sometimes there's just someone a bit drunk shouting and i sort of go into teacher mode and try and say something slightly cutting but ultimately quite harmless and charming and then you know the audience go the audience are with you then everyone kind of turns against that one person and it normally is enough to shut them up but i haven't had many of those thank goodness um cuz that, that i've seen that be really difficult especially when it's a female on stage and there's a man shouting at them it's mm. it's a bit um it's just a bit awkward because when things get real when emotions get real you know when it's real anger or real threat yeah it sort of ceases to be funny in that moment Mm. Um, but I've not had much of that and then in terms of reviews well I have had I've had like two reviews I guess one very early on in my comedy back in 2019 when it was beat the frog world series final and then one in this Edinburgh and both of them when I initially read them kind of made my heart sink and I thought oh you know oh no I think one of them was from Chortle and it said, um, you know, girl with ditty about song about sex, not very original, back to the drawing board, Amy. And when I first read it, I remember thinking like, oh, my God, like, A, he's saying I'm bad. And then there was a sort of anger of like, why is he referring to me as a girl when I'm 29? Mm-hmm. And... um then then I tried to sort of think about it a bit more. And actually it was a start, along with some other factors of a turning point of me putting my ukulele in the cupboard, because I thought, he's right. It's not original to write a song about sex with a ukulele, it's really not. It's been done a lot. <laughs> and actually I that's not the story I'm trying to tell as an artist. And I mean, maybe my show about looking for a job is still not quite the story I'm trying to tell. And I'll, I believe I'll get there one day with what mm. I'm trying to say. Um, so I tried to look at that review in like, you know, in a, take it for what it is. It is just someone's opinion, but also it's someone with a hell of a load of experience in comedy. So I was just like, yeah, he's kind of right. And it was the same in Edinburgh, um, with my review from the Telegraph from Tristan Fane Saunders. And he said something like the joke writing wasn't always as good as the spirited delivery. Hmm. And Again I was like yeah he's right my my sort of where I feel most confident is performing and delivery it's not sitting in a room and writing a a joke set up with a punchline that's still very very new to me yeah. and actually a lot of the jokes in my show I've I've collaborated with people and had help writing those um now I'm starting to find my confidence and feet at writing my own but um so much of comedy is collaborative anyway. So it just made me think like, yeah, he's right. I, I want to tighten up the jokes so that a critic can't say her delivery was good and she's a great performer, mm. but the gags aren't all there. And that's something for me to work on. So I think I've tried to take those two uh, reviews that were, when I first read them, I thought, oh no, it's negative mm. as like, actually it's not that negative. It's, it's constructive feedback. Again, I'm lucky that I haven't had any really horrible reviews and sometimes reviewers can be, you know, spineless, unhelpful mm. and, you know, bigoted in, in what they write, but I haven't received a review like that, luckily.
0: Well, let's talk about your, your Edinburgh show. When you were going into putting your 45 minutes together, what was the, the thing that the show was in, intended to be about at its, uh, at its origin and how did that change? As you got closer to the festival and as you started doing the festival
1: so i guess it was just always meant to be a laugh about me looking for a job Mm -hmm. and quite a sort of quite a surface level show yeah um but then when i toyed about with the ending which took me a while to come to as i talk about in the show so you'll know and i end with my personal statement and it is it's quite it's quite personal, the personal statement, you know, there's it's littered with jokes, but there are some there's some sad bits at the end when I talk about my career not being where I wanted to be. And I still stand by the fact when I was a teenager, I really thought I was sort of destined for greatness on big stages. and And I do think if the 13 year old me, as I say, could see where I am now, that she would be gutted. She'd be like, <laughs> what? Like you haven't even been in like a two month production on the West End you haven't even got had an agent she'd be absolutely devastated because all i wanted to do was be on stages anyway i guess i'm coming round to being on stages a different path and ultimately i'm going to be performing as amy webber instead of you know playing nancy and oliver or whatever i thought i might be doing <laughs> singing other people's music and i'm hopefully one day i'm just going to be singing my own but So, when I added that personal statement in, I had a couple of sessions with a great director and producer called Jonathan Woolley, who um, produces Stamp Town and Jack Tucker and lots of other things. Mm -hmm. And um, he said, Do you know what? He said, It doesn't quite make sense having your personal statement at the very end and being very honest when you haven't been very honest through the show. It's all been very surface level, quite silly. Mm -hmm. And that's when I decided to write the bits that you've seen the in between the songs that tell a little story about a part of my career that I tried and failed Mm. so then the show that was in about May I got that feedback obviously Edinburgh's in August and that was when I really thought okay this show has a bit more substance now and and Johnny said that he said look you can either take out that personal statement and keep it all surface level or you can litter in some more personal tales some Mm. that may be a bit tragic and. And make the show have a bit more depth and i and I said, always always I'll go for the depth, and mm-hmm. if you can make deep things and you know funny, then I think that's a real uh skill or it's fun, so then the show was a bit more about me as a kind of i don't know failing in inverted commas performer um and I like the end of the show because it does make people sad, and there are lots of people who've cried or everyone goes quite quiet and then obviously i I break it with a with a one final joke hmm. um but yeah, it ended up having a bit more meaning than I think I set out for but I love that and I'm glad it did yeah. and someone said someone said well you know if you get an agent out of edinburgh the show won't work next year and the reason this show sells like the telegraph review said is because I play this underdog character so anyway I haven't had an offer from an agent and I'm hoping if I can just go <laughs> eight more months I'll get through the next edinburgh without an agent so I can stay authentic <laughs> and also you know no one seems to want to sign me right now and fair enough it's not the right time so oh i can wait
0: (laughs) for all of your preparation and your writing and your support and previews did the show or how much did the show uh mutate from the first night of performance to the end of the festival
1: (sighs) not that much Mm -hmm. i added i changed a few little bits um the bit about therapy i changed i'm not sure which one you saw but initially it was a conversation about dumping my therapist and i just couldn't find the funny thing in that so i changed it to a skit about texting my dad about therapy so i changed that bit mm-hmm. and apart from that it didn't change that much and again this is something you know i i didn't know i know some people in edinburgh after a show every every show they're making notes they're changing bits they're tweaking bits i didn't do that maybe that's like the wrong thing to do um (laughs) but because i went without anyone telling me what to do i just did my show every day and there were little bits that tweaked and of course as a performer i think i got better so my crowd work was was probably stronger towards the end and there were a couple of tiny gags that kept flopping so i took them out but nothing really changed that much Hmm. Mm.
0: how was your festival experience as a whole
1: Uh, I was quite I anticipated it a lot I was very scared about going I was scared of you know just actually leaving your room and going to another room for for a month is quite scary without any of your friends and family um without the support I've just I just had a breakup in June and so it was like without suddenly my life is a new normal without the support of my ex-boyfriend and again didn't have anyone sort of telling me what to do or helping me, you know like no producer or collaborator or director being like, Don't forget to do a Facebook post on this day or like you must have your poster's orders ordered by this date, mm. and like have you sorted your tech person and this person would be the best person for you? Have you done your sound check like So there was a lot to think about and organize and I guess I'm quite an an organized person and in the end it all went smoothly, but I did anticipate it a lot and it it was a bit of a heavy weight on my shoulders for the whole of the year pretty much because I booked it in like January and then I was like, oh shit, like what am I gonna do? And of course now I've done it once, I feel way more confident. But Mm. once I got there, it was quite like, I was quite head down to be honest. I thought I would network a lot more and be sociable a lot more. But in the end, I either couldn't find the right people. You know, people go between like five or six bars and I never wanted to just like walk in on my own. So if one of my few friends that I could text wasn't out, I would just go home. And also late nights don't and drinking don't go well with vocal health. Mm. And although Edinburgh, of course, is important for networking, I prioritized I want to be the best performer I can be and so there were nights when people were out and you know it got to 12 or something and i was like i need to go Hmm. and i know if i'd stayed out maybe i would have been brushing shoulders with a great producer who might want to have produced my show next year and helped me but i just thought i can't let my audience down and by this point you know, by six days in, yeah. I started having the sellouts. So then it really felt like people are investing in me and investing their time in me. I think maybe my, maybe I would have gone out more and been a bit more reckless with my body and voice had I been getting five people a day. But because I was getting the sellouts and getting yeah. 50 people a day, I was like, oh, you know, word is spreading. Someone must be thinking that this is good. So I better give them their seven quid's worth and be <laughs> healthy. um and in general as well my body is i'm quite a sensitive person physically you know i can have three drinks and go to bed at midnight and just feel really rough the next day so uh yeah i didn't network as much as i hoped i would or make as many friends as i hoped i would but it was my first year so i guess i was just a year seven (laughs)
0: Um, well, the show I got to see at the at the MASH house yeah. was interesting in itself because that was one of your two uh, tech fail nights.
1: Oh, yes.
0: Which, I mean, obviously not ideal for you, but I love situations like that because it means that I'm getting something that a lot of other people aren't going to get. Um, I get a unique yeah. experience. How do you react in situations like that where you're about to perform and something isn't happening the way you expect, and now you've got to do your whole show either without – power or whatever else the situation might be
1: Mm, i was pretty flustered i was quite i felt pretty negative i felt frustrated that i didn't have the tech knowledge to fix it Mm. um and in the end it was in the end it was actually a broken cable but the the broken cable was making the computer react in really weird ways so it seemed like it was a computer thing and seemed really complex Mm -hmm. and i rang my friend um on the second one where the tech broke because I got home that night and it worked. And then I got in the next day and I plugged it in. I thought, I can't believe it. And you know, cause everything's such a rush. I get in my room with like eight minutes to set up. Mm. So I plug it in and I'm like, it's not working. And they're like, we're opening doors in six minutes. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> and I rang my friend who's a, like a computer specialist with the program I'm using. Mm. And even they were like, I don't know. You know, I was like reading what was on the screen and they were like, I, I just don't know why it would be saying that. Um, have you tried a new cable and i said well no but the cable worked yesterday night and anyway it was the cable in the end but uh yeah it it was hard that was a a hard bit i thought i could cancel it that wasn't an option for me knowing that 50 people were downstairs Mm. i thought i could cry and then i tried to do a few deep breaths and you know, throughout my life, there have been times where I've had quite high anxiety about various things. And I have got, especially in my late twenties, and now I've got really good at being able to calm and control those things because they're often irrational. Well, nearly always irrational. And so I just did a few deep breaths and I thought to myself, and I think this, when I get overwhelmed by any kind of performance, I thought it's only art. It's only art. And you know, art is meant to be fun and it's meant to be respite and it's meant to be escape and it's meant to be entertaining, but it's not meant to make you cry if something small goes wrong. So I did a few deep breaths and I adapted in the moment, which I think most performers would, would be able to do, but Mm. I'm definitely good at adapting with some chaos and that comes with, you know, a lot of performance, I've done a lot of teaching, I've done a lot of teaching in special educational needs schools, where you have to adapt in the moment, you know, you plan to do one thing, Mm. and things happen and you can't, or when I was doing opera, I was doing that Gilbert and Sullivan, we would do open air performances in the most of like random places. And, you know, we're meant to be coming in, but our entry is on a river and the boat's two minutes late and someone has to improvise for two minutes when it, that is not scripted. So I think I'm quite good at acting in chaos moments and rising to the challenge. And I did. And I was so relieved that the audiences on those two shows, didn't seem to mind or particularly <laughs> notice, but you know, I knew how, how smooth the transitions should have been, but okay. yeah. So I just said, it's only art and I just got on with it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, it was a great show. I really, really Thank enjoyed you it so much. <laughs> Even with, without the power that you were expecting it to have the sudden a cappella version was a joy. <laughs> it was a great show. I really enjoyed it. How far, I mean, you've alluded to this a little bit, how far does improvisation play a role in the show or if you're doing a 10-minute turn? Because as a musical comic, when you've got an inherent structure by performing a song, how much freedom do you allow within the song that you write or how much freedom around that do you have for, for audience interaction or, or improvising when something doesn't go the way you want it to?
1: I really like improvising, actually, and I think I would like to find a way where there's more of it in my show. Because at the moment, it's there's uh, I yeah, there's like four different moments when I speak to the audience, and within that, often I speak to two people apart from the last time. So I speak to like seven people in an average 45 minutes, Mm. and I really enjoy that. And then, song wise, I always improvise the funeral song right at the beginning Mm. in my CV, and apart from that, that's it. So I would like to make more space for that,
0: yeah,
1: because I enjoy it.
0: What about your persona, if you like, the person that you are on stage? And you mentioned about honesty in your show. How much of that person is you and how much is it the character of you?
1: I think when I'm, I think, I think I would go as far to say it is actually just all me. Hmm. Obviously when I'm impersonating the music lecturer or impersonating the therapist, then I'm them, hmm. so I'm not me. But the C V song is is me, is quite literally my C V. Um, apart from the D of V e, Duke of Edinburgh Award, that's a lie. I never did those. <laughs> it just rhymed and it seems like a classic thing that a lot of teenagers have on their C V. Um <laughs> and yeah, definitely all the little speaky bits in between, the personal statement, the audience interaction, I am just being me. Hmm. Yeah which is a nice feeling because when I started, I didn't know how much I would be able to be me. Right. So it's been quite liberating to find subject matters that I can talk about that allow me to just tell a story, I guess, of my life, yeah. but try and make it funny. <laughs> try.
0: <laughs> but so you also, essentially, uh, you, you have a uniform, the certain tie which looks great yeah. by the way um, Thank you. and you also you obviously you have your your keyboard so are you are you able to be more yourself because you are in a sense protected by having a cloak and a and something in front of you like a totem to hold on to
1: mm, maybe subconsciously yeah i'm not sure i haven't i haven't done a gig where yet where i haven't worn my shirt and tie and i haven't had my keyboard and i haven't started with doing the cv song Mm. um i met someone the other day and voiced this and they said oh i run a night in ipswich we'll come and get you on no one will know you don't bring your shirt and tie don't bring your keyboard and just try doing 10 stand up just so you can try it Mm. um and i'm definitely curious to do that because i feel like the way i establish well I worry that the way I'm establishing a rapport with an audience, whether I'm doing a seven-minute set or 45, is right at the beginning. I sing, right, so people kind of go, oh, she's good at something, so we can kind of trust her and we can relax into the performance. Mm. Um, And I know clowns often talk about this, that as well as being silly or self-deprecating or chaotic or whatever, you have to show a a real skill Mm. that has to come with the chaos. So I think I have a slight fear that if I start a gig without that skill in inverted commas of singing, mm. that maybe the audience won't be on my side, that maybe they won't listen to me as much. Maybe they won't like or warm to me as much. And so I would love to challenge myself and try a gig without a certain time, without my keyboard, without singing, or maybe I sing a tiny bit because that's part of who I am, but it's not a full song, you know. Mm. Um Yeah, so I don't know how much it is a sort of safety net blanket.
0: We're talking about skills also. This is something I particularly wanted to ask you about it because it absolutely intrigues me. With your upbringing in Japan, you speak Mm. the Japanese. When you throw that in a little bit quite casually in the the show, next to me I heard an audible gasp. (laughs) What I noticed is that you smile extra wide smile when you speak Japanese for the first time on stage and your pitch of your voice goes ever so slightly higher. I've seen it (laughs) twice. Are you excited because you're i don't know pulling the rug out of an audience
1: i guess i'm excited because it's a surprise and also like i love speaking japanese my the best bit of that bit it's happened twice now is when there's someone comes up to me after and goes i'm japanese or i can speak japanese and so it is this kind of I, i also love the idea that some people might think i'm lying like that some people might be like oh my god like she's like faking japanese like is that racist do you know what i mean and i love i love them wondering that and me going like no i know exactly what i'm saying and and i think possibly the, the change of pitch is is maybe like chotto." Mm, i think when i speak japanese i maybe just do go a little higher that mm. might just be like a language thing, mm. uh, yeah, I think it is because in my English tone, I mean, I speak about this with my with my singing teacher, um you know because I still have lessons um mm. and and of course, do singing work um my my speaking tone can be quite low, like la la like round here, quite raspy sometimes, ah, uh, that kind of grit <laughs> in my voice, whereas zetai. <laughs> More強いかな. So I'm not, I, that, I've never noticed that before, but I'm not speaking the Japanese. Like I'm not going, Nihongo yeah. shabetara, Like where I speak English, I'm going into this da 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 da, slightly higher placement. Yeah. Anyway, that's something for all the uh, <laughs> vocal specialists listening that might find interesting. <laughs> Uh but yeah, I just love that bit and I'm I, I want to get some more Japanese bits into into the show actually or into my set because it is different and mm. people are intrigued by Japan as a as a culture and I've had that, you know, amazing privilege to have that insight. And while I was there, loads of funny stuff happened because I was a weird kid and I was in a different country <laughs> yeah. and I was the only, you know, white kid in the school. Like I did loads of weird shit that I kind of got away with, but kind of got bullied for. Um, and I think it's funny. So I'm going to try and get more in, into my show. Yeah,
0: Yeah. What about vice versa? What about playing in Japan?
1: Ooh, well, I haven't been for a few years now. So the last time I went was April 2019. Hmm. Um, so I hadn't done, I don't think I'd quite done my first gig then. Uh, but I might try and go in autumn as a like a post Edinburgh retreat. I might try and go in autumn <laughs> next year. Uh, you know, assuming I go again, and assuming the the world is still here as we know it, um. So yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna get on some Facebook forums and see what events there are in Japan. But I tell you this for free, I am not taking my keyboard all the way to Japan. So I'm gonna have to have figured out a set that doesn't involve that because. If I go to Japan, I'm not going to do work. And if I take that keyboard, I'll end up doing work, you know, because I do my comedy with that keyboard, but also a lot of my songwriting work, I have to use that keyboard. So mm. when I go away, I really don't want to take it with me. otherwise <laughs> it reminds me of doing stuff. Um, but, yeah, I'd love to get some gigs. Have you got any contacts for anyone in Tokyo or Kobe or Osaka? Let me know.
0: What then so far have been the best and worst experiences you've had in comedy?
1: I think the best bit is always when I finish a gig. No, the best bit is during a gig when people are just laughing their heads off. Mm. There's been a couple of gigs I've done that I can really remember. They're both actually outside of London. One was in Kent Mm -hmm. last year Um, and one was in Essex this year, and um, I got there, and there was a lot of um, middle-aged people, maybe 40, 50. Um, Everyone had like quite a thick Kent or Essex accent. I was a bit aware that suddenly I was maybe outnumbered by men, and also that maybe I have a bit of a posh voice compared to them, and I sort of thought, oh, maybe they won't like me, Um, and... I say we because it was it was so mutual, but we honestly just had such a fun time. It was just one of those gigs where every little bit I do that's meant to be funny and, and then subsequently every little look or aside or ad-lib that I did, they just laughed. They just absolutely took it in and loved it. And I think when you when it's a bit unexpected like that and you know also for me you're out of your comfort zone when you go to a new place or a new town and you've parked up your car you don't know where you are you don't know where the door is Mm. and um and you know certainly i'm aware that when i enter a space i'm a i'm a woman and i do have a posh sounding voice posh not that posh but you know middle class-ish voice and so i'm always aware of how that might make me look or people perceive me um and i think oh maybe they won't like me maybe they'll just think i'm a sort of a posh twat or something and they don't because i guess (laughs) i'm not (laughs) is the truth but um those gigs have been really fun Mm. and and i think then i also love it at the end when people follow me um you know on instagram or, or facebook and send me a message or come up to me after the show and just say like that was hilarious and it's not about sort of compliments of, oh, your singing was good. I you know, I never know what to say when people say that. I say, well, look, I've studied it for six years, so it bloody should be good. <laughs> but when people just, just want to say hi, because I get that feeling when I see an amazing performer, whether it's comedy or singing, you just want to like see that person and just go up to them and say, I, I loved that, mm. or I love you. And... um so those are the best bits just doing a great gig and and Edinburgh was a highlight. I think at the time I was too wrapped up in okay got to keep my head down and got to keep going to really relish those sold out shows, but looking back, you know, that was such an amazing. I'm so lucky that that was my first Edinburgh. That like I had set my expectations so low and expected a month of disappointment and crying and it didn't happen. I didn't cry once even when the tap broke in the end. Um, (laughs) And the worst bits, I don't know what the worst bits are. I suppose it disheartens me sometimes to see um, lack of diversity on on lineups. Hmm. It disheartens me sometimes when people make jokes at the expense of someone else. And then when you maybe pluck up the courage to say, I don't know about the use of this word in your set hmm. and then they go no I think it's fine or I find it funny um it, those kinds of things dishearten me I think when people forget that performing is a platform and you know as much as you can you should be speaking about your experience and not yeah taking the piss out of other people i never do i mean i hope in my career i never get cancelled but as you've seen from my show there's nothing really to get cancelled for because (laughs) i i don't i don't take the piss out of any other demographic Hmm. than basically amy weber um (laughs) so yeah that's maybe a bit of a disheartening part of comedy you know seeing um seeing some reviews from Edinburgh that were were, were bigoted seeing people with a right wing agenda use comedy to push it through um and seeing people with lots of privilege talk about less privileged groups and then not take um ownership when they get called out and told that maybe that's not okay but you know mm-hmm. these are things that i have it's paralleled by things happening globally right but you just see it in comedy um and 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 I guess there's other industries as well like that, you know, sexual predators not being called out for fear of people's own career progression or their keeping hold of their contacts and mm. all that kind of stuff that happens in life. You can also see in the comedy industry. So those things are disheartening. But um yeah. Other than that, I do I do really enjoy it. And I'm excited to see where this takes me. Mm. I really hope that comedy could become like a full-time thing for me um or, or entertainment and comedy you know I'd love to to be a presenter I'd love to there's so many jobs that I'd love to do And I, and I always have said this well I've said this for about the last six years and um, when I was a kid that my dream my dream job is to be paid to be Amy Weber and in some senses I'm already doing that but you know when I write kids songs or when I sing at a wedding I'm I'm not quite being Amy Weber. I'm being Amy Weber, but for a client. But when I do comedy, I really feel like I'm just being Amy Weber. So I'd love to do more of that. Hmm. Yeah.
0: So you talk about uh things that you would like to do. Do you have targets, objectives? You have like a five-year plan?
1: I do. I wrote it last year. It was maybe a bit um it was maybe a bit over optimistic. <laughs> but I think my plans for the future alike. Um I'd like to maybe get on doing some music for Radio 4, even though some of the comedy on there is actually a bit stuffy. No offense. Um I'd like to try and get on the TV for the BBC New Comedy Awards. Mm-hmm. I'd like to do another Edinburgh, Brighton and Manchester Fringe and continue to grow my followers. And then I guess within five years i would like to get an agent eventually i'd love to do live at the apollo of course that's another sort of thing that everyone hopes to do um i would like to i don't know write write my own show have it commissioned by the bbc um do a netflix special do a tour sell (laughs) out tour you know All that's I'd love to be a presenter for Bake Off one day. (laughs) Once I've sort of at the other end of my career, I guess. I'd like to do some collaborations with some cool people. I you know, I want to write some jingles or come and do a little cameo role for people as an opera singer or something. Oh, there's loads of stuff I want to do. I'm not sure how (laughs) confident I am that I'll get any of those, but I I feel hopeful. Yeah. Yeah
0: you brought out some fantastic philosophies while we've been talking do you have any sort of watchwords that you stand by if you're when you're performing I must do this I mustn't do that have you learned any key lessons since you started doing comedy
1: yes so the key lessons I've learned is if you're doing a gig in a weird space always acknowledge the space mm-hmm. you know like if you're doing a room in, a gig in a library and there's one dodgy light and there's weirdly six kids in the front row acknowledge that acknowledge that it's weird i guess unless you're like the fifth person on and everyone else has done it Mm. but find some way in your set to acknowledge that there's something unusual and then the other thing i learned was don't ignore anything so if you're halfway through and four people walk in late acknowledge it Mm. if a chair falls over behind you acknowledge it because if you don't it and i've seen people not acknowledge things happening in the space and it it does just look like you're on autopilot hmm. you lose that sense of in the moment spontaneity which people love that's what gets the biggest laughs yep. for, for me and and for other shows i've seen you know you can be doing great material and then suddenly a bottle clanks at the right moment you make a b- gag about your alcoholic mum being there and <laughs> it gets the biggest laugh of the night people love those you know audiences love those one of a kind moments mm. like you said about yeah you coming to my show when the tech was broken <laughs> um so i think that's what i've learned um obviously don't copy anyone's jokes i mean that's a sort of classic that everyone knows mm. um be nice um that's it
0: <laughs> <laughs> how can we find out about you and where we can come and see you perform
1: So the best way is to follow me on Instagram or Facebook, which is Amy Webber Comedian. Or you can go to my website, amyweber.co.uk. And uh, you can find out all sorts of stuff on there because I have a bit about singing, a bit about songwriting and a bit about comedy. And then on Twitter, I'm Amy Webber Sop, S-O-P. That's for Soprano, back from the days when I was a soprano. And um, upcoming shows... I'm doing my first ever full-length show in Bristol in January. That's Friday the 26th mm-hmm. of January, and then I'm hoping to get booked in in at the Bill Murray and Angel around January, February, and try a few new bits that would that are going to make my 45 into an hour. Mm-hmm. Other than that, I don't know. Brighton Fringe in May, Manchester Fringe in July, Edinburgh Fringe in August. So just get it in your diaries now. <laughs> <laughs> time, time and venue to be confirmed. Yeah
0: um and so finally amy how would you sum up comedy in a nutshell
1: i would say it's a thrilling moment of exposure and vulnerability met with warmth that's on a good gig by the way
0: (laughs) amy thank you so much it's been absolute
1: pleasure Thank you. That's so fun. I really love chatting and I really loved your questions. So thank you.